Hi everyone, Tarek checking in to remind you that our usual first segment was in last week's episode, and that in this current episode, you'll be getting the usual main topic and a What's Been Tasty For You segment. If you liked our advice episode from last week, please send us a DM. We would love to hear from you. Enjoy the episode. You're listening to the No BS Nutrition Podcast. I'm registered dietitian Hannah McGee. And I'm neuroscience PhD student Tarek Youssef. And for the next hour, we're going to tackle popular nutrition topics from a scientific lens, promoting fact over fiction with no BS. introduce our i guess our second topic we're like halfway through but (laughs) yeah that was amazing yeah so um i mean kind of in tandem with the whole diet cycle um Mm. something that we got as a recommendation to talk about uh from a listener was the idea of restriction so part of that whole binge restrict cycle but really focusing on the restriction and for me at least the way that i um I was interested in it was, I don't know, from my bias was like from a very um, uh, biomolecular perspective, uh, which I'm excited to share about. I did have a few caveats to start with, if you don't mind. Sure. Just about this whole topic in general. Yeah. So I think someone had, yeah, someone wrote in or they commented on our post when we were asking, uh, you know, what kind of topics do you want us to talk about? And someone said mm-hmm. like the psychological um yes uh what's the word i'm looking for um effects effects effects. (laughs) okay (laughs) i don't know i I was looking for the word like consequences or something like that but like psychological effects of food restriction um right so yeah i'm excited to talk about it and and back to you yeah oh yeah yeah i mean um so i hope it's okay that i'm bringing a bit of more biomolecular part i'm excited to hear what you have to say too um but i was really curious about some things and uh so let me let me explain i want to give a caveat to this whole topic for everybody listening and thank you to that person for um posting that comment and asking us to talk about the psychology of restriction so here's something as we know from our conversations it's easy to find studies that point to various benefits of calorie restriction right there's so easy to find those studies mostly those center around better cardiovascular measures and sometimes they also talk about reduced inflammation those are the two like biggest um things that some studies point to as beneficial outcomes to calorie restriction so I will say it is maybe good to remember f- from previous uh, previous podcasts that we had, I think about intermittent fasting, um, that most large meta-analyses that assess all of those hundreds of primary studies tend to find no effect of traditional calorie restriction or of fasting on those measures of health. Okay. Sometimes... For whatever reason, 
it might make sense for somebody to want to lose weight if their weight maybe is related to a specific health concern. I don't know, in very specific circumstances, if their weight directly relates to a certain disease. But the overarching message, as far as I can see from reading the literature and as far as I've concluded from our conversations, Hannah, is that despite all of those one-off studies, calorie restriction is not the holy grail of health, right? Okay. So another thing to keep in mind is that most of the calorie restriction studies are like a few weeks long and even rarer. Some of them are a few months long. Um which also doesn't take into consideration the sustainability of calorie restriction, which ties in very closely to the psychological effects of calorie restriction. I mean, the fact that we're just behaviorally, as a species, unable to maintain these really silly and awful and difficult to maintain diets points to some sort of psychological factors. So, it doesn't take into consideration the sustainability of calorie restriction, nor the supposed permanence of those alleged health indicators. So, sure, for the duration of the study, there was a small decrease in C-reactive proteins, so maybe there was lower inflammation. But your study was three weeks long, so uh, do we know that that was maintained afterward? No. More interestingly, I think, a lot of these studies about calorie restriction, so when we're talking about psychological effects something to keep in mind is that a lot of these studies are done on healthy individuals okay so i would then like pose the question what does it mean to admit a healthy individual into a calorie restricted trial and then conclude something about their psychological effect their psychological outcomes and health and other uh, biometric health indicators what does that even mean to say that a healthy person came out healthier? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, w- right. what does that mean? So I would say, so there's no good evidence that calorie restriction is tied to even any substantial longevity, which is what some people argue. Right. So I, I just want people to keep that in mind when thinking about calorie restriction is like a lot it's i personally i mean just from my limited experience like learning from this literature so far i find it difficult to make really solid conclusions yeah. from a lot of these studies mm-hmm. um anyway that's kind of a little caveat that i wanted to start okay. with <laughs> i don't know if you wanted to go first i'd love to hear what what you had to say yeah so when Thinking about the effects of specifically um, the psychological um, effects of food restriction, the so the first thing I want to say, how do I want to how do I want to start? Is okay. There are when okay in the readings that I did and and in my experience. Um, restriction, let's start out with kind of defining what restriction is. So it mm-hmm. can be the like physical food restriction or like, right. like starvation, um, you know, or not even starvation, but not under eating, you know, not eating right. enough calories, um, or adequate calories. Um, so whether that, yeah, is starvation or just, you know, eating less than your body needs, 
um, in instances, whether it is eating disorders, like, um, mm-hmm. I mean, any eating disorders, but, you know, for example, anorexia nervosa, um, whether it's uh, due to food insecurity um, or something like a famine um, or, you know, if you think back to, I don't know, back with like the Irish potato famine and things like that, mm-hmm. like, you know, those days, war days, things like that, when there wasn't enough food to go around. Um, right. So that's that's one form of restriction is that like physical sort of starvation or physical restriction. And then right. there's there's even, though, something a little more, um, a little more nuanced or... Uh, kind of hard to define and that is like i call it mental restriction Mm -hmm. um so that's uh it but it could be a few different things so Mm -hmm. mental restriction is like it it could be you know just having like kind of like the diet mentality you know like sure this food is bad this food is good i shouldn't eat this Mm -hmm. i should eat this this is off limits another um Another example of like, this is kind of a, an in-between between mental and physical restriction, but like okay. um, something called restrained eaters. So mm-hmm. that is not, you might've seen some of that in the, in it, some yeah. of the literature that you read, but a mm-hmm. restrained eater. So that would be someone or another, another term for that could be chronic dieters. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of times they were used interchangeably, but a restrained eater is someone who's not you know, like physically starving themselves, like maybe someone with an eating disorder would be, but they may have periods of restricted eating, um, or maybe even they have a chronic or consistent restricted eating, but it's not like drastic, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. they're, they're counting calories or they're, you know, they're following a diet program, um, and just, and limiting their calories and they still have that mental restriction, right? Like I can only eat this much per day, or I can only eat this many carbs per day or whatever. Okay. So the number, the, the, the main thing that happens, um, when we have those, either of those types of restriction is the tendency to overeat or even binge eat when food is available. That's kind Mm -hmm. of the the biggest one that we see uh, when it comes to restriction. Now, before we get into that, there is one experiment that I want to talk about. And I, you Mm. probably, you either probably saw it when you were doing your research for this, or you've, you had heard about it before. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And some people listening may have already heard about it, but you know, usually when I'm reading about restriction, uh, mm-hmm. whether that's in a, you know, a certain book, um, about, you know, I think just recently when we had Alyssa Rumsey, um, on the podcast and, and talked about her book on apologetic eating, I'm pretty sure she mentioned this experiment in her book. I think other, you know, kind of anti-diet books have mentioned this experiment as well. Um, it was done, a, a, you know, a long time ago, uh, in the, I think it was published, um, in 1950, but was conducted in 1944, I believe. So it's the Minnesota starvation experiment. Have you heard of that, Mm. Tarek? I think so. Yeah. Okay. 
So it was conducted by Ansel Keys. Um, he was a physiologist at the University of Minnesota. And this experiment was conducted right around like World War II time, right? 1944, 1945. Um, and, and the purpose of it was to investigate the psychological and physiological effects of starvation. Mm-hmm. So right around that time, like I said, it was World War II. There was a lot of hunger and starvation around the world. And doctors and researchers didn't really know how to help people rehabilitate or recover from starvation. Mm-hmm. So, okay, but this study or this experiment is it's cited a lot in in okay. um, discussions about like restriction and starvation. Experiment. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very well known. Um, and the so the study was done on. Con- how do I say this word? Con- conscientious objectors. So, mm-hmm. you know, people who didn't, um, they didn't go to war like these, uh, right. but they, they wanted to contribute in some other way. Uh, you know, okay. they were dedicated to, um, helping or bettering, um, back at the, home, the population back at home. Yeah, exactly. So now the, the study was only done on 36 individuals um and it was you know the the selection of of the subjects was very strict and and so we we do kind of have to think about that Mm -hmm. um you know the subjects were male they were single i'm assuming they were probably white um and you know they had to demonstrate good physical and mental health now the research protocol or or the experiment basically um wanted or, or called for these men to lose 25% of their normal or usual body weight. Okay. Right. So the way the study uh, was designed, so they, they spent the first three months of the study eating a normal diet of 3,200 calories a day, okay. followed by six months of semi-starvation at 1,570 calories a day, which was divided between breakfast and lunch. And then a restricted rehabilitation period of three months eating 2,000 to 3,200 calories a day. And then finally, an eight-week unrestricted um, rehabilitation period where there was no limits on their intake. And then the diet that was provided was mainly foods that were available in Europe at that time, you know, during the war. So things like potatoes, root vegetables, Mm -hmm. bread, macaroni. Um, And while this was happening, while this experiment was going on, the men still had to work. They worked 15 hours per week in the lab. They walked mm-hmm. 22 miles per week um, and wow. participated. I know that's a lot. Um, mm. And participated in a variety of educational activities for 25 hours a week. So throughout the experiment, the researchers measured the physiological and psychological changes that were brought on by near starvation. Mm-hmm. So... You know, aside from visible weight loss, um, you know, there's there's images if you look up the study um, of like very pronounced visible weight loss. Um, okay. They, you know, they look. Um, I guess I would say probably slightly or, or somewhat emaciated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've clearly lost weight, right. um, and and but the probably the aside from that visible weight loss the. The most interesting thing that the researchers saw or that they found or, you know, one of the psychological reactions to this starvation was that the subjects became so increasingly focused on food. Okay. 
They were mm. like fixated on mm. food. Um, they, for example, they collected recipes. They hung pinup pictures of food in their rooms. Mm. Um, they changed career plans to food-related activities, like becoming yeah. a chef. You know, they they talked about wanting yeah. to do that. Um, they also, the, the, it was very noticeable that they um, grew increasingly irritable um, mm-hmm. and upset. You know, they'd fight with each other uh, and their girlfriends. Uh, they appeared apathetic and lethargic. Um, seemed to lose interest in sex. Um, in fact, in one of the one of the um, reviews that I'll talk about that that cites this experiment it says that they replaced pictures of women with food wow um, <laughs> like in their rooms um so and and one of another interesting um change or um result i guess that was noticed was that even after the study had ended or even you know once they were in that rehabilitation period where food was unlimited um and then even after that um these previously normal healthy eaters began to like binge or um gorge themselves when attractive foods were available Hmm. So, and, and they even reported feeling out of control with their eating and obsessed with food. Um, some right. would even steal food or gum or things like that. So it, it seemed to produce almost like a binge eating uh, tendency in right. previously normal eaters. So right. I know it, you know, it was very small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very small study. Obviously, a lot of different, you know, a lot of limitations, things like that. But, you know, it's so it's. It's a, such a well-known study, I think, because the yeah. it, just the results were so interesting. Um, and I mean, it's s- interesting to reflect back on it because this would never be allowed today to run a study like that. Right. So it's yeah, kind of like absolutely. one of the only options for us to have a view into how that um, manipulation on these people yeah. uh, would affect them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the... Um, I, I I mean I see this a lot and and I th- and mm-hmm. I think most you know other dietitians will agree that food restriction typically results in one like a preoccupation with food um, yeah. if you're depriving your body of of adequate calories and adequate food you one you know psychological result of that is like constantly thinking about food because your body's right. not getting enough um, and then. Um, and then that binge eating, I just keep coming back to that because it's so, I've seen it, it's so common and it's, I think it's been a little while since I've read intuitive eating, but I'm pretty sure they describe it in that book. Maybe not, I could be wrong. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Um, that they describe it as like last supper eating, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, um, yeah, and yeah. it's because, you know, and, and typically it happens like once the diet or once you're like good eating put that in air quotes has been Mm -hmm. broken um and it's kind of like oh well screw it i messed up um so i'm going to just eat all the food today and go back to my diet tomorrow and that's kind of why it gets that last supper because it's kind of like this is my last chance to to before i go back to restricting and not only is it that mentality but i think like there's also something going on in the body there right where our bodies are so deprived that 
once we do get that like taste of like an attractive food mm-hmm. or like a you know maybe something really sweet or something really rich or something the like that. The reward is so strong because yes, been, it's almost like if you don't drink alcohol for a long time, like mm. you feel tipsy off of the first sip of a drink. Yeah, because you haven't had it in so long your body has adjusted to not having it and then all of a sudden when it's available the effect is really strong yeah yeah absolutely um and one thing that was interesting that i came across so i was reading this uh this review of literature it's called uh psychological consequences of food restriction and it's actually published in um the journal hold on what's it called it's from the yeah the journal of the academy of nutrition and dietetics Mm -hmm. And um, did you come across this one? Did you see this? No. No. Okay. So it, yeah, it, I mean, it's a literature review. It reviews a bunch of the literature on food restriction. It's it's not new. It's like, when is it published? 90, 1996. So it's, it's old. Sure. But it was really, really interesting for me to read. And um, one thing that they, one study that they, uh, cited in this review I thought was so interesting and it's around kind of that binge or like last supper mm. um, almost mentality. mentality and and this is what they say the basic paradigm for studying eating is to present subjects with either no prior food or a fattening preload of for example two milkshakes I don't like that they use the word fattening but you know it's 1996 mm. Mm. Um, all subjects are given three flavors of a different food such as ice cream cookies and nuts to taste and rate so Mm. that's what you know what the participants think they're doing is like just tasting and rating these foods right um the taste and rate phase is actually the ad lib eating part of the experience so we measure how much of each food the subject eats while making their taste ratings what we find is that unrestrained non-dieting subjects so people who Mm -hmm. you know they're normal eaters they probably have a you know, normal, good relationship with food, um, these non-dieting subjects eat less after a high energy preload than after no preload. So this preload is like when they're given something else that's high in calories before they do the tasting. So Mm -hmm. just stay with me here. Yeah. So this is normal energy regulation and is what any organism would be expected to do. You know, so one compensates for a preload by eating less. You know, if you eat a big snack before you have dinner, you're probably going to eat less at dinner. That's what we right. think anyways. In, in mm-hmm. normal kind of, you know, non-dieting, unrestrained yes. or unrestricted eaters. But when, so here we go. When restrained eaters receive no preload, they eat a small amount of the foods given to them to taste. Mm-hmm. But after a, quote, fattening preload, or, you know, maybe say something really calorie dense, um, restrained eaters eat more than they do after no preload. Right. So, um, you know, apparently once the preload breaks their diets, the restrained eaters feel free to indulge in the good tasting foods we provide them. So, and then they go on to say, you know, further studies have shown that, you know, it it's believed that once someone has broken the diet, this is what promotes that overeating. And so it's almost like probably a physical and mental thing, but like once the diet is broken or once, like we said, you get a taste of that, you know, rich calorie dense food or that quote bad food that you weren't supposed to have, yeah. you want more of it. And I think one that's probably, you know, 
a mental thing and, and saying, oh, screw it. I'll just eat it and then get back on track tomorrow. But I also think it's a physical thing. It's your body after a period of restriction or starvation mm-hmm. um, going, wait, I don't know when I'm going to get something, right. you know, calorie dense like that again, or that many calories or whatever. Again, give me more. And it's like driving you right. to eat more because you are deprived. Yeah. So I thought that was really, really interesting to read. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll obviously um, include the citations for these different studies uh, in the show notes if people want to take a look. But yeah, that's, I mean, kind, of, so that's kind of what I had. Go ahead. I think it's super interesting because it, goes really um it's really in line with some of the stuff that i read that was more recent so like this stuff has held up what has developed though is of course our understanding around these behaviors and maybe what's happening um uh on like a more focused level awesome so i i am gonna talk about the psychology but then so about one study but then i do want to get into a little bit of the biomolecular stuff around Mm. restriction because i found some stuff that's pretty interesting that i hadn't thought about before and i thought maybe you would be interested to hear about it if you didn't if you weren't aware of it you probably are um and people who are listening might be interested to hear about it okay so first um there's the study from uh 2019 um in a journal called current psychology uh by de young and colleagues called the relation of dietary restraint and affect with food choice and the experience of guilt after eating. So they were looking basically at how people felt while they were eating with a little bit of an intervention. So this was kind of interesting. I didn't know this, but apparently this is um, like a longstanding tradition in some psychology uh, experimentation. But um, one way that you can that psychologists apparently have influenced people's moods in studies in the past is by using music. So they'll play different pieces of classical music that are known to produce different feelings. So that was the intervention uh, in this study. So they wanted to see how affecting somebody's mood might affect their subsequent um, food-seeking behavior and their subsequent feelings of guilt. And to top it all off, they looked at the interaction between all of that and whether somebody was a restricted eater, as you mentioned, or a not restricted eater. So I'm very mm-hmm. happy that you already explained that to everybody. So what they did was they used um, a psychological questionnaire um, that measured food, uh, that measured eating behaviors in different ways. And then basically they got a score that either categorized a participant as a restricted eater or a non-restricted eater, which I'm sure there's like, I don't know. I'm sure there's a a margin of error in that. But Mm -hmm. anyway, that's what they did. And then um, they presented these people with the intervention, which was the the music. They would play like, I guess, a really, really sad piece of classical music or one that was more uplifting. So I thought this was really interesting, especially because I think a lot of people can relate to that whole feeling of guilt, like within the binge restrict cycle. So I was curious about how all of that actually works. So what they found or what they concluded was that people who are restrictors are more likely 
and again, that's why I was saying it was interesting what you were saying, because it goes in line with what you said. People who are restrictors are more likely to choose foods with lower caloric value, which is what you said, like when they're when they hadn't had the pre dose Mm, or whatever it was called, the preload. That's so strange. Then they then they restricted their eating. Right. So Mm -hmm. people who are restrictors, no surprise there chose foods that had lower caloric value when they were presented to them after, like during this experiment. And restrained eaters, in general, report eating lower fat and reduced calorie foods like mm-hmm. in their life. And they eat more fruits and vegetables than non-restrained eaters. So they're making all these quote-unquote healthy choices, right? Right. You know. Yeah. Um, But interestingly, the data shows that they still eat around the same number of daily calories, right? So Mm. even though there are these decisions being made, restrictive decisions, there still is food-seeking behavior that leads to them averaging out to the same amount of calories as everybody else. But unfortunately, they're living in this perpetual cycle of binge restrict, right? Wow. Even though the outcome is the same. So um, in in laboratory settings, people who, you know, are restrictive eaters, like I said, they choose lower calorie food. So basically, the fact that you are a restrictor only predicts your choice of food, but not your intake is basically their observation, right? So um, in this study, the restrictors, like I said, it was correlated with choosing lower calorie items but they also experienced more guilt after their eating which maybe isn't so surprising um however they were more likely to experience the guilt after the like negative what they called it a negative mood induction, basically like the sad song that they played. So when they played the sad song, people who were restrictors were more likely to experience guilt after eating, mm. which I don't know. I, I think that's really sad. And obviously it points toward this psychological, this like, but also like hardwired pathway in the brain that's learned over time about associating food-seeking behavior with guilt, right? So basically, these people are learning, basically like conditioning themselves to feel guilty after eating. Mm -hmm. The problem is that this itself seems to be a, a vicious cycle. So people who feel guilt after eating also report like trying to fix that guilt with more eating so that this gets into like so we were at first at the restrict part and now it gets to the binge part of the cycle again right so these people their guilt predicts binging and binging predicts their guilt and so does restriction so it's this like really awful of like we always talk about this binge restrict cycle cycle yeah i think what i i think what 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 i took away from this study anyway is that your emotions are it is possible to manipulate your emotions right so this study manipulated people's emotions with you know a, a sad sounding song in order to make them feel more guilty after eating 
So even though be changing your behavior is extremely hard, and that's like the thing that like psychologists always go back to and dietitians always go back to is like behavior change is so, so difficult. I think it is possible. Shifting your mindset is really hard, but it is possible. And it takes time, like we were talking to Channing about earlier, but it is possible. And this study doesn't talk about this. But anyway, just as I was reading it, I thought, you know, there may be things that we can do throughout our day that might help with these feelings of guilt so that maybe we try not to perpetuate the cycle of uh, of binging and restricting. I don't necessarily know what those things are. The paper didn't speculate about those things, but trying to let go of that guilt at least, or like noticing if you're doing things that make you more upset and more guilty after eating kind of like that whole intuitive part, like noticing how you're feeling around your food might be really helpful in order for people to feel, I guess, more in control of their own behaviors around food. Mm, yeah. This is a really like, uh, this field is still really developing, obviously. And uh, I don't know, it, it's tough to even make conclusions about this stuff, but I, I thought it was kind of optimistic. I, I know the paper doesn't necessarily sound it, but I really did think it was optimistic. Because if the paper had said we weren't able to manipulate anybody's feelings with anything, then it's just like, oh, crap, like, this is just our brain and it's hardwired and that's it. But that's not the case, yeah. right? Like, our brain obviously is very plastic. Okay. So that was one study. Now, what I really want to talk about is this other study. and. I feel like we've been talking for a long time, so maybe I'll try to go quickly. So this paper was called Calorie Restriction Memetics Against Age-Associated Disease, Targets, Mechanisms, and Therapeutic Potential by Medeo and colleagues from Think 2018. So there's a couple things to break down here, even in the title. So what they're basically talking about is that, you know, they're, they're making these assumptions based on a lot of animal models whether it's robust evidence or not uh anyway obviously it's up in the air it's very controversial i've mostly focused on reading the human work so i'm not familiar with a lot of the mammalian stuff but there seems to be something to it at least in these animal models that calorie restriction for whatever reason unknown seems to result in some sort of increased life expectancy like in worms Sometimes in mice, like okay. really not translatable stuff here. But however, there's this association with increased life expectancy and um, th- that's related to calorie restriction. And basically what this paper is trying to say is like, we should try to study this because our world is filled with aging people. And that means that we have age related pathologies on the rise. So we need interventions that are going to, whether or not they can prevent, but at least undo the consequences of aging or age-associated pathogenesis, deterioration, and so on. So what they say is, you know, there's this, when there is a reduction of calorie intake without malnutrition, so calorie restriction and fasting, in whatever ways it's problematic but in these animal models at least there seems to be this extension of uh of lifespan however and they point out they point this out that there is a difficulty in complying with this long term obviously these regimens are really difficult to stick to 
So what do we do in that case? If we can't actually exert these behaviors that are related to these supposed health benefits, again, all like with the caveat that this is all animal work for the most part. So what they're saying is we turn to a calorie restriction mimetic. So mimetic, if people aren't familiar, mimetic is a drug that's created or discovered um, that targets whatever hypothesized biological pathway. So it's the name comes from mimic. So it's mimicking the effect of something else. So calorie restriction mimetics would be drugs or compounds that mimic the effects of calorie restriction without the actual behavior of calorie restriction. So we want to find drugs that give us the benefits without actually having to go through this basically unsustainable and um, impossible to comply to uh, behavior. So they talk about how there's all these drugs, all these compounds that actually target these hypothesized biological pathways that have been you know, discovered in all of these animal models that might be related to increasing lifespan and bettering health. And this all has to do with, they say, I thought this was really interesting. By the way, this is in like a good journal. It's in cell metabolism. Like, uh, but, but I say that saying like, when I, as I was reading the paper, I was like, a lot of this is like, come on. A lot of this is debated in the literature. Like none of this is written in stone. But they say that, over the years, one of the theories is that calorie restriction works by promoting something called autophagy. So autophagy, for people who don't know, is when a cell or a component of a cell is recycled by itself. So basically, like, think, you know, a cell is this blob. Everybody knows from science class in junior high and high school that it's this double-layered bilipid membrane. Um, and basically, that membrane can pinch off and make smaller little vesicles or vesicles inside of the cell. And those vesicles can basically suck up whatever proteins or organelles are inside the cell and basically like take them to the dumpster and get rid of them. So that's what autophagy is. So basically recycling components of the cell. So they say that's what calorie restriction does, apparently, is it's recycling cell components. And... The way that calorie restriction is doing that is by promoting um, or by reducing, in fact, a process called protein acetylation. So people can kind of think of, I mean, if you're not familiar with this, this is going to sound, if you are familiar with this, this is going to sound really silly. But if you're not familiar with this, I hope it's helpful. You can think of acetylation as kind of like a flag that a protein has. And when it stops waving that flag, that's kind of an indication that the protein is saying, get rid of me, like throw me out so that one of these vesicles inside the cell can go in and um, envelop it and go through the process of recycling. So go through that process of autophagy. So apparently that's what calorie restriction is doing in order to provide its benefits beyond weight loss. I will give this study this. They really don't focus on weight loss as a main outcome They're, They talk about all of these other associated Outcomes, which again we've seen through meta analyses, are uh, <laughs> that there's no good evidence for. Regardless, suspension of disbelief, because I do think part of this is interesting, because it's talking about this really complicated behavior like calorie restriction, but then it's pinpointing 
a single molecular process, which I think is so wacky, but they're saying it with so much uh, confidence that I was that it made me want to read the paper. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I, I'm, I won't talk about this for too long, but um, I did want to highlight something. So what are these medics? Like, what are these compounds? And people won't be shocked to hear that we know a lot of them already. So the most popular ones are... Um, HCA, hydroxycitric acid. We talked about that in the last yep. episode, remember, from Sarah's program. Um, resveratrol, which is a plant compound found in the skin of grapes, blueberries, raspberries, peanuts. Um, a compound called spermidine, which was, I think, found in sperm, which is why it got its name, but it's actually found in um, a bunch of foods like wheat germ and uh, I think chickpeas, uh, a bunch of stuff, aged cheese, mushrooms, uh, corn. It's plentiful in the Mediterranean diet, apparently. Um, And aspirin, which may Hmm. seem a little bit strange, but I've actually heard that before. I've heard these kind of um, like clickbaity things of like an aspirin a day will keep Alzheimer's away, which... I don't think that's necessarily been <laughs> proven or else we'd all yeah. be on it. But anyway, th- there's these like tiny links that people have made in the literature. Okay. Suffice to say, even they say in the study that there is that these things are hotly debated and that there's been failures in clinical trials to actually prove a lot of this stuff. But but they keep but they keep going through with it and talking about it. Um I think what I'll end it with is just talking about how something I found interesting was uh, something that like really rattles my brain is like, okay, if, if these effects are so robust in animal models, why are they not translating? Is it just because our genetics are different, you know, as humans, but these effects are even found sometimes in non-human primates. Okay. Well, is it just that these studies are really crappy and people aren't controlling them properly and, uh, they're poorly designed, uh, I'd say, uh, maybe, because a lot of the studies that were cited in this review were studies that you and I have torn to shreds before. Wow. That was very, very interesting. Thank and you. I'm trying to figure out how to tie it all together and sum it up. Any ideas? Oh. <laughs> um, and yeah, definitely. I mean, restriction, I think, is something that is learned. And I think, therefore, it's also something that can be unlearned. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, absolutely. The behaviors are not because you're weak. They're not because you don't deserve mm. to be happy. Um, they're not because you don't deserve to be healthy mentally and physically. Um, unfortunately, they're often just a byproduct of whether it's the way that we're raised up or our environment um, or the availability of food to us, whether Mm -hmm. it's scarce or not, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Fortunately, it's a result of that. Thankfully, there does seem to be evidence uh, that points toward those behaviors being modifiable, whether that's extremely difficult or not. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to speak to, but um, there is evidence that they're modifiable. We are such complicated animals. And if neuroscience tells us anything, it's like a surprise every day with neuroscience how much we're able to do with our brain. And I think we really should be optimistic about behavioral change if that's what we're looking for to get away from a binge restrict cycle. Mm -hmm. And that 
one thing we know for sure from lots of papers, I think, you, you and I, from going through all this literature for like over a year now, you for years, is that support is so fundamental. And surrounding yourself by the right people is really important. I think surrounding ourselves by people who are going to promote healthier behaviors than weight loss, actual behaviors that will benefit you, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. whether it's healthier choices or whether it's, you know, um, healthy choices and exercise, that will go a long way. And I think part of that is, of course, a professional component as Mm -hmm. much as a personal component. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. That was a great summary. Um, I think as well, I like that you say, I don't know exactly what words you use but you mentioned that you know the restriction and and even like the binge restrict cycle it's it's not your fault and you know Mm -hmm. it's not um it's actually as we know and you know as we talked about it's this tendency to binge or to overeat as a result of restriction um is actually like a psychological and physical physiological um result of of restriction whether it is uh voluntary or involuntary or whether it mm-hmm. is mental or physical like you know whether it's starvation or it's um restricted eating um or restrained eating you know this tendency to binge eat as a result or to have fixation on food or to have um you know to be more irritable or, or things like all of these things that we talked about that um are effects of restriction um there it's not it's not you you know what i mean it's not you failing um, or being a bad person or any of those things it's it's a reaction um to try and correct that um whether it's starvation or just deprivation um that that's what it is so i think that is very interesting and i think that's also reassuring to know you know there's that what is that um saying you know you didn't fail the diet the diet failed you and totally you know exactly um what it is is the diets restrict you or they deprive you and they lead you to feel preoccupied with food they lead you to overeat or binge eat when you do have access um or when you do you know get a taste of whatever that food is whatever you know um so i think that's a good place to to end it is that sorry can i say one more thing absolutely and 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 I will say, that, and this is something we've talked about before, but just to remind people, so for, we're specifically talking about restriction and binging here, but so I will focus on that. Restriction and binging are not the things that you immediately necessarily need to fix according to like, you know, this new knowledge about intuitive eating mm, and all these mm. things. It's actually the underlying cause of that that's something mm-hmm. that you want to look at more closely whether that be mm-hmm. anxiety or depression and and i think this the first study that i talked about kind of points to that is that our mood is influenced by whatever factor and that then goes and influences our feelings of guilt for example after restriction and or after binging so Try to, I mean, if you're somebody who just like listens to emo music all day and you find that that makes you sad, I mean, I love emo music, but sometimes you have to listen to uh, Aretha Franklin and feel really empowered. You know, I, I don't know. There's little things that you can do for yourself, for your mood, including professional help uh, that will go a long way. 
to making you feel better rather than trying to fix restriction or binging directly, which is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think as well from an intuitive eating standpoint, um, it's never necessarily like focus, like you're saying, on restrict, like, you know, stop restricting, stop binge. You know what I mean? Like, how mm-hmm. do we stop the cycle? A lot of times it's stepping back and looking at all the other, um, you know, the way that you think about food and your body and everything, like stepping back and looking at all of those things instead of just like, how do I stop binge eating? You know, it's like address your relationship with food and, um, and you know, all of that past history with dieting and and everything like that or whatever it is, if that's the case, if you have a history of dieting. Um, and then with that kind of like you're saying with like the emotional side, like try to address the emotions. And with that comes, um, eventually takes a long time doesn't happen overnight mm-hmm. like um then eventually it addresses the binge eating right. um over time so in in most cases or in certain cases mm-hmm. i don't want to you know general overgeneralize but everybody's um, different yeah yeah well that was a very interesting episode it was a long episode <gasps> and we're not done yet that's right did you want to ask me or do you want me to ask you first me oh oh my god it's okay um hannah do you have oh no 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 what's been tasty for you this week okay so you might already know what's been tasty for me this week but it's oh. something that oh, happened to me yay. today yeah oh my, i was wondering if you were going to talk about this oh. i'm so excited to share about it people are like they're this... so nerdy once you say it <laughs> <laughs> i know um but this morning i was so pleased and lucky and privileged to be able to uh, get my first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. If people can't see me, which you can't because podcasts are not a visual medium, I'm raising the roof right now. He's raising the roof. Yep. Yep. So in case you're wondering, my left arm is a little bit sore. Um, I haven't really experienced anything else other than that. I did feel a little bit Mm. I guess I'm feeling kind of like a general feeling of fatigue, but nothing sure. crazy. Like, you mm-hmm. know, it kind of feels like it's the end of the day, which it is, and I'm tired. Sure. Um, but really, that's mostly all that I've experienced so far. I got it at 9 a.m. this morning. Um, and I'm so You happy. seem to be able it to just... move the arm. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. wiggling, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's. I was very excited. And I'm, you know, looking forward to everyone, you know. That wants to get a vaccine, I getting know. a vaccine. I and, really want mine. Um, it's just so cool to, like, it's been such a crazy year. Yeah. And such a hard year. And, and to yeah. just, ex- obviously, it's not over just because I got the of vaccine. Course. Yeah, yeah, Um, But it just kind of felt, it gave you me a little bit of hope. You know what I mean? mean? Walking out of there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. For me, I just, like... I just want to have the, like, I'm still obviously going to be masking and everything after I get vaccinated, but I totally, just want to have totally. that extra reassurance that, like, I have mm. that extra bit of mm-hmm. safety. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that's hopefully soon. I mean, I think in the next few months, the plan is that 
everyone yeah. should have the first dose anyways we're here. really lucky here but, on the east coast yeah 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 and i mean i was lucky too i don't want to go on about this but <laughs> i know i'm not like i the way that they are rolling it out in new brunswick they're mm. just um all allied healthcare professionals are nice. qualified to get it no matter That's where great. you work and i know in some places it's not like that so i'm lucky that i just kind of fit in the the um eligibility here that's um, amazing. But yeah. Okay. So what about you? What's been tasting? I you almost this was week? like, should I apply to like nursing school? Will that be faster <laughs> for me to get vaccinated? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, what's been tasty for me this week? Uh, actually, I I have something very specific. It's And it's a food this time. Yay. It's um, a Korean pancake called hotuk, which is a part all-purpose flour, part rice flour, I'm sure you can make it different ways, pancake that is pan-fried, and it has a filling traditionally of mixed nuts, chopped up mixed nuts, and sugar or honey, or I put a little bit of maple syrup in there because, I mean, <laughs> I mean, look where we live. <laughs> um <laughs> And it was unbelievably delicious. It was truly um, like a pot. It was like um, this little pizza pocket of love and warmth and comfort. Um, I put a little bit of cinnamon in there. That's what the recipe I used called for. Maybe I'll include the recipe in the links. Yeah. Because I really loved it. It was honestly, I hadn't made something in, in since the real ones will know nbsn summer salad since the summer salad i haven't made anything that has been so life-affirming as um this korean pancake so that's my i'm so glad Mm. i'm so excited to share it with you you know when i had a bite of it i was like i need this at every major occasion of my life because it's so good i can't wait to share it with Uh, you yeah i can't wait to try it Mm. um that sounds delicious i love that thank you for sharing thank you all right. Well, thank you guys for, if you're still listening, thank you for sticking <laughs> it out with us <laughs> throughout this longer than usual thing, episode. Go home, go to bed. It's been way too long. But I think, I don't know. I feel like, you know, it was a long episode, but it was a lot of, I had a lot of fun talking about I it. It was a lot of, of good information, I hope. Um, and if you thought so, let us know. Send us a mm. DM. Leave us a rating and review. And subscribe to the podcast. Um, I think on, I mean, most people listen on Apple and Spotify. So if you listen Mm -hmm. on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. If you listen on Spotify, just subscribe. Just hit the subscribe button. Absolutely. uh, Or follow or whatever it is. On Twitter or Instagram, just tag really uh, rich brands and tell them that they should uh, work with us. Sponsor us. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, please do. We would love you for it. We already love you. We do. All right, we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.